It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everyone. This program is truly shocking. It shocked me about the gambling industry's move on young people right in their homes to get them addicted to gambling. That's right, Ralph. On this program, we've targeted big pharma, big oil, big tech, big tobacco. Today, we take on a new Mr. Big, big gambling. To enlighten us on the topic, we'll be joined by John Kent, who is Professor Emeritus of Business Administration at the University of Illinois. Mr. Kent specializes in the socioeconomics of gambling and legal policies, and he wrote a piece in the November-December issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen on the topic entitled, Time to Criminalize Internet Gambling. Gambling used to be taboo, but in recent years, gambling operations have poked their heads out of the shadows. With internet gambling and sports gambling increasingly normalized, is it possible for regulators and the legal system to wrap their arms around this beast? That's the first half of the program. In the second half of the program, we welcome back our resident constitutional scholar, Bruce Fine, who's going to talk to us about the Gaza situation as it relates to the International Court of Justice. As always, somewhere along the line, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Rosso Mokhyber. But first, like the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale, gingerbread house marketing is notoriously effective at hooking kids into gambling addiction. David? John Kent is Professor Emeritus of Business Administration at the University of Illinois Gies College of Business, where his teaching focuses on, among other topics, the socioeconomics of gambling and legal policies. Mr. Kent has frequently testified as an expert witness before state legislative and congressional committees. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Professor John Kent. Thank you for having me, and thanks for all that you do to inform and educate the public, particularly on these important issues, and to advise decision makers on Capitol Hill and elsewhere throughout the country. Well, we welcome you aboard. I came across your latest work in an article in the Capitol Citizen, a publication of ours, which some of our listeners have been obtaining. And the article is called Time to Criminalize Internet Gambling. It was so shocking, John, in terms of the facts that you put into this article. So I want to frame our discussion, which is going to stun you listeners. You just hold on. You'll see what I mean. By quoting from your article, you start your article in the Capitol Citizen with the subtitle, 60 to 80% of high schoolers say they have gambled for money in the past year. Okay, here's your opening sentences. Quote, flying under the radar of policymakers, big gambling is now targeting kids in vulnerable demographic groups with algorithms promoting gambling addiction. According to a report from the International Center for Youth Gambling Problems and High-Risk Behaviors, between 60 to 80% of high schoolers say they've gambled for money in the past year, and up to 6% of them are addicted to gambling. Gambling addiction is comparable to cocaine addiction, according to the American Psychiatric Association, 
a diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders in the U.S. and international medical communities. And what is the fallout, you write, from gambling addiction? And you start with the Illinois example. Tell us. Yeah, well, we go way back on this, and, and you in particular, along with Ralph Reed and the Christian Coalition, in a nonpartisan, bipartisan way, helped move through Congress back in the 1990s, the U.S. National Gambling Impact Study Commission. And it affirmed many of the things we'll be talking about here today by experts. And, and let me just say, my colleagues and I have been researching this for well over 30 years. This is top-tier academic universities involved, including the University of Illinois, which has been one of the leaders in this area. And back in the 1990s, Illinois is one of the first states to get the casinos. And within a very short time, there were suicides, gambling addiction, bankruptcies, increased crime. And what you're alluding to, Ralph, and thanks for your good work on this, is that in fact, one mother became so addicted to the gambling machines at a casino that she ran out of money, went home, smothered one of her children to collect the insurance money, claiming sudden infant death syndrome, collected that money, went back, lost it all, and then went back after a second child and killed a second child. And she's now in prison for insurance fraud. Another example, the University of Wisconsin, a student got hooked on internet sports gambling, killed three people in the apartment where the gambling was being promoted by other students, then committed suicide. This is an addiction, and the American Psychiatric Association recognizes it as such, but the public doesn't know about this because big gambling has dumbed down the public and policy decision makers saying this, oh, this is just fun and games, it's just entertainment. But today, they're target marketing kids. They want the next generation. If you go online, you'll see all these little kids games, which are, if you watch your kids playing on them, you can tell that they're getting ready to go straight into gambling. And as a gambling addiction, kids don't know what they're getting into. Their parents don't know what they're getting into. And what we say with these phones is now you can click your phone, lose your home. What you're describing, John, is corporate crime at the most depraved levels. And big gambling, they go to these legislatures, and they're corrupting universities too, like Penn State in right. Pennsylvania. They go to these places and they say, look, you're budget strapped. If you have legislation to allow this gambling, you'll take a cut and it will increase revenues for the state. Of course, the gambling industry did this in Atlantic City when they persuaded the New Jersey legislature to open up gambling casinos because it would produce all kinds of revenues to help the elderly. These are promises that most often are not met. Now, Illinois, you have good figures on Illinois in terms of how much gambling there is, how much the take is by the state, and all important, what the cost is in terms of mental and physical damage that the taxpayers have to pick up. You want to go through the Illinois example because that has the most years of experience behind it so that listeners can alert themselves in states around the country that haven't yet fallen prey to these electronic child molesters, these gambling companies that have nothing better to do with people's money than to take it through this kind of addictive speculation and seduction. 
Well, thanks for that. Illinois was one of the first states to get the so-called riverboat casinos. And of course, this was just a ploy to bring casinos everywhere to Illinois and to other states. They promise what we call the ease. They'll help education. They'll help the environment. They'll help the elderly. They'll help the employment. None of that is accurate. They just throw nickels and dimes at this. And we've done studies, again, tier one universities, and I, I wish we were on video because you would see volume after volume after volume behind me, which are we call the red flag reports on gambling. They're red covered volumes. You can find them in the Congressional Library, the Library of Congress, and law libraries all across the country. And basically, it's very well established academically that the costs are $3 to $7 or more to the government and social services and to the economy for every $1 in benefits and new revenues coming in. That's just well established. So it's lose-lose for everybody except the people who own the gambling. And the people who own the gambling are making huge amounts of money. Let's name some of these companies. Name some of these companies. I tell you, Ralph, I don't feel comfortable naming specific companies. I just, and my colleagues, we just talk about big gambling. I want you to feel comfortable while I'm asking you the questions, because I feel very comfortable in naming names of these companies. If you just talk about big gambling, you're nowhere near specific accountability. When you talk about specific names of companies, the next step is the names of the CEOs the names of the director of marketing and advertising. You find out whether there are any whistleblowers. The reason, John, you've done all this work with your colleagues year after year after year, and you have bipartisan support in Congress for criminalizing this kind of gambling, but nothing has happened. Nothing has happened except that the gamblers have gotten more bold, more intrusive, going down the age scale to kids in their bedrooms at night gambling. What we're seeing here is the usual phenomena of academics establishing the evidence for action. Capitol Hill has bills in, and you name them in this article in Capitol Hill Citizen, the bills and the sponsors, and the gambling industry lobbyists, they have 250 or so full-time lobbyists on Congress, has blocked them. So it's time to go to a new level, John, if you're really serious about it. Let me tell the listeners from your article how extensive this is. You, you show how it drains the economy. You say, an industry predicted $65 billion in casino industry revenue for 2023, but that's only part of the total legalized gambling is annually cannibalizing the U.S. economy by approximately half a trillion dollars a year in lost consumer spending. This is a spending that could go to housing, food, clothing, healthcare, whatever. And you add, quote, for years, U.S. citizens have been legally wagering more money than the total amount spent on food in America. Food in America. And you go on, and I'm quoting you, over 30 years, Illinois gambling lobbyists have also contributed substantially to the misdirection of government funds, resulting in unfunded liabilities of approximately $175 billion and putting Illinois state pensions and employee benefits at risk, end quote. 
That's how serious it is, listeners. And John, I don't know how many more years you're going to do all this good work on a treadmill, but you tell our listeners what the next stage of actual action, accountability, criminal prosecution you would like to see, and name some members in Congress who are on your side, both Republicans and Democrats. Well, I'll start out by naming some allies, so to speak. And it's, again, it's bipartisan. If you look at the Kids Online Safety Act, we've been talking about protecting kids. That passed out of the Senate Commerce Committee last year unanimously. I think it passed out of the Senate Commerce Committee again, almost unanimously, if not unanimously. And then what happened to it? Well, it's been stalled. It has to get past the leadership in the Senate, basically has to get past Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, and they have to come on board with this. It was slated to be included in the last omnibus bill, and then it got stripped by, unfortunately, it's got 220 organizations behind it and both sides of the aisle, but... Big tech and big gambling joined forces. They brought the ACLU on board to object to this legislation, as well as the LGBTQ community. And that's simply a red herring. These two groups are not analyzing this Kids Online Safety Act properly. I think they've been misled. And this is a no-brainer, really. What's the bill number so people can follow it? The, uh, the Senate bill number is 1409, Senate Bill 1409. And over in the House, Paul Tonka, it says, we need to restrict advertising, just like we did for tobacco and, uh, and other types of dangerous substances. And his bill is called the Betting on Our Future Act. That's H.R. 967. And then there's the Greyhound Protection Act, which doesn't even sound like it's relevant, but it is. And it's uh, H.R. 3894, the Greyhound Protection Act. And that has multiple sponsors on it. Basically, the gambling industry lobbyists have gotten to the leadership in the House and Senate. Because years ago, John, if there is any bill that passed unanimously from the Senate Commerce Committee, it was automatically going right. to pass through the Senate. Right. So tell us about the nature of these gambling company lobbyists. Well, as you pointed out earlier, I think it's the group Open Secrets in Washington, D.C. indicated that there are uh, 287 registered gambling lobbyists being paid approximately $18 million from 183 clients and 63.4% of these are former government employees. Now, all of these lobbyists are being paid $18 million. In Illinois, back in the 1990s, two lobbyists, two lobbyists were paid $20 million just to try and get a casino license, one of the original 10 casino licenses. That would be $40 million in today's money and my colleagues and I were called to debate these two lobbyists in front of a huge crowd in Northern Illinois. These lobbyists didn't even show up. They don't have any facts on their side. My colleagues and, and I, we testify before Congress under oath. Big tech and big gambling have joined forces and have really misled and are dominating the entire discussion throughout the United States and indeed the world. This is actually a worldwide problem, too. And in a congressional hearing in 2006, 
that was pointed out. And again, Congress didn't take any action, but they did pass the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act in 2006, which is not being utilized by DOJ. You're talking about the Department of Justice. Tell us about how these gambling exploiters are working over the universities. Why are the universities so tempted? Tell us about the Penn State example. We've actually been doing pretty well in keeping them away from the universities because 98, 99% of the academic community gets it. They know that this is just legalized fraud. But the administrations of these universities want to put on their resume that they're bringing in money, any kind of money. And so, for example, in Penn State University and down in one of the Louisiana universities, the administrations of those universities, their presidents, uh, I'm sure, are involved have been actually advertising and partnering originally with their lotteries, but now with other sports gambling companies to advertise on their billboards during the game, vote on this game. And of course, there's real-time gambling now on the internet. You can actually sit there and bet on if the next play is going to be a run or a pass. You can bet on how many yards might be gained or lost. And let me point out, from the Wall Street Journal, on Super Bowl Sunday weekend last year, the Wall Street Journal indicated that a lot of these streams are delayed by 15 seconds to 60 seconds, which is called past posting in gambling. In other words, the play has already been run and millions of people are still betting on the play. And when they bet on the play, they've already lost. Now the bookies know this, so they'll take the bet if you've already lost, but they won't take the bet if you're going to win the bet. So all of these so-called savvy, hip people out there gambling need to realize that they're being outmaneuvered, they're being manipulated. And then if you combine this with artificial intelligence and the new gambling algorithms, gamblers don't have a chance, even those who like to gamble. You need to ask, are we being cheated? Well, the Wall Street Journal directly and indirectly says so. So now these are adults, but what about kids? Because as we've indicated, they're now target marketing the kids. Well, you also talk about a series in the New York Times in November of 2022. I remember that. They got the Pulitzer Prize for those articles detailing huge scandals in the sports gambling industry, including partnering with universities to target students with addictive gambling activities. I mean, this is serious, listeners. Academic studies, according to John, and Gamblers Anonymous confirm, and I'm quoting from his article in the Capitol Citizen, confirm that 20% of addicted gamblers engage in a serious suicide attempt. 20% in a serious suicide attempt, and these numbers are similar to the numbers calculated for opioid and cocaine addicts. I just don't understand how these revenue-hungry university administrators are getting away with this. These are contracts. Do they make these contracts with the gambling industry and sports gambling business public? Can the students look at them, student newspapers, the regular press, civic groups, Gambling Anonymous? Are they public? They should be if they aren't, if you're asking me that question. I mean, these are public universities that are involved, and this type of information should be available under freedom of information requests if they're not released voluntarily. You know, going back to Illinois, when the casinos first came to Illinois back in the 1990s, 
we had instances where the students were getting on buses and going to the casinos and losing their tuition money. And certain groups had to pass policies that said, okay, if you want to do that, you can do that, but it can't have any official club sanction from, from any university or college. I don't know how well that's being enforced these days, but again, they're target marketing kids. And even in the gambling industry's own literature, they're actually bragging now that they've got about 10% of college students seriously hooked on gambling, addicted to gambling, 10%. These are not my numbers. These are numbers that are published by the industry itself. They're so arrogant, they don't care because they don't think the public will ever get it and decision makers won't take action. But we need reenactment of the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, which was passed by NBA legend Bill Bradley when he was a New Jersey senator. That's what's precipitated all of this online gambling. Listeners should know that at the university where our guest John Warren Kent is a professor, University of Illinois, there was a series of articles in November 2021 in the University of Illinois Law Review, published nine articles by 14 Blue Ribbon academics, which directly and indirectly criticized the Supreme Court decision called the Murphy decision, as well as how big gambling was deceiving state legislators and the public regarding the legality of Internet sports gambling, end quote. Usually when something like this happens, plaintiff lawyers file civil lawsuits. I know you'd like to see this whole industry under a criminal statute, but are there any civil lawsuits being filed on behalf of youngsters, for example, who were drawn into a gambling addiction life. Yeah, well, our, our offices have monitored several lawsuits that have been brought over the years, but it's like tobacco. The tobacco industry knew that if they lost one case, they'd be in serious trouble. And the same thing's true with big gambling. And so the amount of money that they can bring to the issue and drag it out. There was a well-known case by Boys Schiller, uh, the New York law firm, involving basically a California case, people who were being misdirected into gambling in California. And they worked on that case for years and years. And big gambling just took them around the block and, and finally just ran them out of, I think, the money and the willpower and the resources to keep the case going. So when you have billions and billions of dollars coming in every year, you can hire every lawyer in town. As a matter of fact, when I testified back in Virginia once in their state legislature, they literally had hired every lobbyist in town, registered lobbyist in town, as a pro-casino lobbyist, with the exception of, I think, two firms, who said, we're simply not going to do this for ethical reasons. But as I indicated before, we had two lobbyists in Illinois who were given $20 million just to try and get a casino. So the, the money's just so enormous that it, it swamps good public policy. I want to quote from your article, recriminalizing internet gambling before the next pandemic or economic crisis is essential to U.S. economic stability and national security. Governments and gamblers themselves need to recognize that it is impossible to win against the new deceitful manipulations of internet gambling algorithms, end quote. Well, before I turn it over to Steve, David, and Hannah, tell us quickly about the case of Stephen Paddock. 
Great. Thanks for bringing that up. Who's heard of Stephen Paddock? You've all heard of Sandy Hook and Columbine, but Stephen Paddock is the biggest mass murderer shooter in American history. He's the Las Vegas shooter back in 2017, I believe it was. He killed 59 people, wounded 419, injured about 1,000 in the class action lawsuits. And who's heard of this? You don't hear about it in the, in the mass media. And this is a travesty. But there really was a cover-up. And if you go to a movie called Money Machine, you'll see all about the cover-up that was perpetrated by big gambling as uh, their PR mechanisms to downplay the fact that he was almost certainly an addicted gambler trying to take out his frustrations from gambling on the public in his shooting spree. And Ann Coulter wrote a column on this. The New York Times indicated this. But it was a big story for a month, and then it's gone. Now, you hear about these shooters recently in terrible cases all across the country in subsequent years. But the starting point should be Stephen Paddock. People need to understand that it's a gambling addiction and it's widespread and it's spreading everywhere. One, can, one can only imagine how disruptive it is to families whose relatives are addicted to gambling on a day-to-day -day basis. You can imagine the disruption, the mental health problems, the economic losses, the bankruptcies, the desperate behavior of late-stage addicted gamblers. Obviously, the evidence is in the bipartisan support is palpable, but nothing's happening to roll it back, to prosecute these people, get criminal statutes. What needs to be done so that all the people who want something done can get off their treadmill and start applauding real progress? Because one of the criteria of a society's decay, moral, economic, and otherwise, is gambling. What do you think should be done to take it to the higher level of action? Well, I think that people need to become more informed, not believe all this gambling propaganda, and definitely approach their members of Congress and raise these types of concerns, particularly when their members of Congress are back in the district, the senators and members of the House, quite a few of them, as we've mentioned already, want to do the right thing. They want to act in good faith. They want to make things better, act in the public health, safety, and welfare. But they need to know that their constituents are behind them. So I would encourage people to do that. I'd encourage them to read this article in your newspaper, the Capitol Hill Citizen, because that's plenty of ammunition for them to raise concerns about having gambling on cell phones. And again, when it's directed toward kids, and they are directing their toward kids and minorities and vulnerable demographics, they're target marketing these groups. And I have 13 grandchildren. They can go to bed. The pusher for drugs is on the street corner, but the pusher for gambling is in their hands 24-7 on their cell phone. Click your phone, lose your home, lose your tots to online slots. If people want to get your article... It's in print. You have to go to CapitalCitizen.com and ask for the November-December edition, 
as John said, it will give you more than enough to summon your senators and representatives to town meetings back in your district. Summon them personally. Make the case overwhelming as you can and as the facts permit. And then interrogate them. Put these bills in front of them. Get them to commit when they go back to Washington. This is doable. Tell us very briefly about Gamblers Anonymous. Is it like Alcoholics Anonymous? Yes, and they don't release anything publicly. They have a similar step program comparable to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they also have a Gamblers Anonymous for the families of addicted gamblers. You were asking about Illinois earlier. Just a quick example. Front page of the Chicago Tribune, Illinois is one of the first states to allow sports gambling back in 2020. Within two years, or a little over two years, the Illinois Department of Human Services reported that there were now 383,000 addicted gamblers. I mean, like drug addiction, like cocaine addiction. Your government has created 383,000 new addicted gamblers in the state of Illinois, plus 761,000 new problem gamblers who are on their way to becoming addicted gamblers. I mean, this is this is a huge problem. And if you take this to Wall Street, and these companies want to put gambling on Wall Street, and they want to tie it to credit default swaps and new types of investment vehicles, they're selling all kinds of snake oil to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And the latest one was objected to by over 600 groups and including six U.S. senators, one of whom was Elizabeth Warren, a former Harvard law professor. I mean, this is spreading rapidly and it just needs to be plainly shut down. And we mentioned the United States National Gambling Impact Study Commission, which was the congressional commission on this. We all testified under oath before this commission. And they indicated in 1999, unanimously, that there should be a moratorium on the expansion of any type of gambling anywhere in the United States, and that online gambling should be prohibited now and forever, because there was no way to control it. Don't be too satisfied, John. I want to I, I'm not satisfied. This is a problem on many areas. Yes. They put out reports, gets a little coverage, gets a little correction on Capitol Hill, bills introduced. Year after year, it's blocked because the corporate lobbyists know how to take control of the key legislators at key committees or the leadership of the House and Senate. It goes on year after year after year after year. So I've said it once, I'll say it again. We need a much more powerful strategy. Steve? Professor Kent, the argument is that keeping all of this out in the open, just like legalizing drugs, keeps it from being driven underground and dominated by organized crime and non-taxable. What would you say to that argument? Members of organized crime have testified before Congress saying that when you legalize it, you provide what would they call acceptability and accessibility. And those two factors allow organized crime to prosper because organized crime gives better odds and it encourages people to gambling and increases their base. The FBI official position for years was, quote unquote, if you build it, they will come. Right out of the old Kevin Costner movie. If you build it, they will come. And we have the FBI saying on record 
that gambling is the biggest money maker for the mob that there is. So even though they're low key and they don't want to be in the public spotlight, just watch Martin Scorsese movies, watch Casino. He really tells it like it is. David? I know this would end up before the Supreme Court, but short of legislation, which seems impossible right now, is there anything in Joe Biden's executive order toolbox to rein in online gambling? I've seen anti-tobacco ads on television that are horrifying. I don't think those anti-tobacco ads require an act of Congress. Is the White House allowed to launch a war on gambling Without legislation, could there be a presidential commission against gambling? Would Joe Biden be allowed to produce anti-gambling television advertising where Americans are warned about the devastations of gambling? Could this all be done through the executive branch without any legislation? I have a feeling that it could be done by means of executive order, but uh, I'd have to think about that some more. But even better would be directing the Department of Justice, the the DOJ, to enforce and reverse their position on the Wire Act, Bobby Kennedy's Wire Act, which was designed to prevent all of this gambling over the wires, gambling over the Internet. It was interpreted to include the Internet for years and years. And then uh, about 11 years ago, I think it was 2011, DOJ was highly criticized for reversing its position and basically saying that Bobby Kennedy's Wire Act did not restrict all types of gambling over the wire. The other thing is Congressman Bob Goodlatte, who was chair of judiciary for many years, passed what was called the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, which came out of the National Gambling Impact Study Commission, and it has all kinds of enforcement mechanisms in it that could be directed, including against daily fantasy sports. And I testified before that committee back in 2006 on these particular types of issues. By the way, historically, the bulwark against gambling in this country came from the organized church, organized religion. And the moment the churches started having bingo in the basement, the gambling industry said, that's our foothold. And they never stopped. And the opposition of the organized church in this country crumbled. And then it was off to the races in every possible direction and penetration by the gambling industry. All right, we're out of time. We've been talking about a very serious problem that hasn't gotten enough serious action or even media coverage. We've been talking with Professor John Warren Kent at the University of Illinois who's written this very usable article for you to summon your senators and representative to town meetings back home called Time to Criminalize Internet Gambling. 60 to 80% of high schoolers say they've gambled for money in the past year. Thank you very much, John Warren Kent. Thank you, Ralph, for all that you and your associates do. And let's save our kids from gambling. We've been speaking with Professor John Kent. We have a link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, Bruce Fine to talk to us about Gaza and what's going on at the International Court of Justice. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, January 12, 2024. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services 
recently collected fines from 18 stores in 12 counties because of excessive price scanner errors. 11 of the 18 stores were family dollar stores, three were dollar general stores, one was a Target, one was a Circle K, one was an advanced auto parts, and one was a food matters market. Our standards division remained diligent in its effort to protect consumers across our state in 2023, said Agricultural Commissioner Steve Troxler. Inspectors continued to find significant numbers of price scanner errors at stores across the state, which serves as a reminder that consumers should check their receipts and notify store managers if they see an error. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulcarver. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Hannah, and the rest of the team, and of course, Ralph. And to set us up on our next topic, let's hear from our colleague, Francesco DeSantis. In response to Israel's campaign of destruction in Gaza, South Africa has filed a lawsuit at the International Court of Justice alleging that Israel's actions, quote, are genocidal in character because they are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinians in Gaza, end quote, per PBS News. Israel, which PBS acknowledges, quote, has a history of ignoring international tribunals, end quote, intends to send a legal team to The Hague to fight this case. Bruce Fine is a constitutional scholar and international law expert. Mr. Fine was associate deputy attorney general under Ronald Reagan, and he is the author of Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle for Our Constitution and Democracy and American Empire Before the Fall. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Bruce Fine. Thank you so much. Bruce Fine, on a topic that you have great experience in, The International Court of Justice is entertaining, as we speak, a case filed by South Africa and joined by several other countries, such as Bolivia, charging the Israeli government with committing genocide under the Genocide Convention that was passed in 1949, ironically born of the Holocaust. And this is going to be a major international case because Israel belongs to the International Court of Justice and is going to contest actively the case rather than ignore it. Tell us about it. I believe that uh, as just uh, maybe I'm being picky or fastidious, South Africa is the only name party. I think it was thought that it would complicate things to add additional parties where you have to notify all their lawyers and scheduling becomes a headache. Bolivia and several other countries have made public statements in support of South Africa's complaint, but short of being parties themselves. You've had experience before this court in The Hague and the Netherlands, and you've studied international law and the Geneva Convention on Genocide. How strong do you think this case is? Well, to my mind, this perhaps is the strongest case in the history of the Genocide Convention, which was ratified in 1951 when sufficient number of states became parties. Uh, Now, why do I say that? The Genocide Convention is very clear in its definition of what constitutes genocide. And I'm almost quoting word for word, deliberately creating conditions of life calculated to physically destroy, you know, a national, ethnic, religious, or other group in whole or in part, calculated to physically destroy. I mean, literally hundreds of officials from the highest levels that the Netanyahu administration have openly stated, (laughs) we are going to lay a siege. No water, 
no food, no medicine, no shelter, no hospitals. You can't survive under those conditions. And of course, we've seen the result combined with the siege, the actual attack, tens of thousands dead. There are probably countless others that will die because they're in very, very vulnerable conditions since they're exposed to contaminated water, disease, and otherwise. So they may die later, not instantly, like they would from a bomb. And they've also stated clearly that, in their view, Palestinians are animals and will be treated accordingly. Many statements saying they need to be driven out of Gaza. They don't deserve to be there. These are the most flagrant, direct confessions of a genocidal intent that's imaginable. And we can think of other more recent cases of genocide, which are far less atrocious. Take, for example, the genocide that was found by the International Criminal Court on former Yugoslavia against the Serbs for massacring hundreds of Muslim men in the upsurge of the the Bosnian War. We already have, we don't have hundreds here. Uh, We've got at least 23,000 more in soaring. In addition to that, the physical destruction has almost been complete. 70, maybe more than 70% of the entire Gaza infrastructure has been destroyed. Again, it's uninhabitable. And there are projections of experts that you could have half a million people starve to death in the next several months unless something is done. There's been no real relaxation on the entry of trucks and humanitarian aid into Gaza. The trucks are vulnerable to being bombed. You know, they are destroying uh, UN schools. They're killing journalists at a record pace. And all of this is open and notorious. They're not classified documents. And I believe that Israel is different from even going back to the Holocaust. The Nazis at least trying to conceal the extermination camps at Dachau and Bergen-Belsen and elsewhere. Israel's not concealing anything. I think that betrays an expectation that there will not be any punishment, whether they get a decision adverse out of the International Court of Justice. How do we enforce UN Security Council where Israel is protection of the United States? And I do believe that it speaks volumes that the Israeli defense forces, the Israeli defense forces killed three Israeli Jews who were held hostage who are holding up white flags and speaking in Hebrew. I think that means that they were acting under orders saying, shoot anything that moved. Say, oh, well, that was just a mistake. No, it wasn't a mistake. That's their modus operandi in Gaza. And unlike other genocidal situations around the world, the Gazans can't flee. They can't escape. They can't get out of there because it's under a siege blockade and they're in what's called the world's biggest open-air prison. So, Well, that's right. And, of course, uh, the other countries surrounding don't want them. I mean, I suppose there is space in Sinai, but the Egyptians, they're not letting them in because, in some sense, it kind of mitigates the catastrophe that Israel has created because that's what Israel's goal is. Because Israel has pleaded with other countries to take them. No other country has because it would then embolden Israel to do even more destruction, I believe. And to undermine any possibility of a two-state solution if they expel all these Palestinians. That's why Egypt is so adamant in not allowing the Israelis to drive Palestinians through the Rafah crossing into the Sinai. Well, I think, in my view, Ralph, they've already destroyed any possibility of a solution short of a United Nations mandated, you know, 
a caretaker and successive administration. The fact is that Israel would no way ever accept any kind of Palestinian authority that didn't completely renounce and denounce Hamas and say it'll never come back. And any authority that do that would have a shelf life of a nanosecond. You know, it wouldn't live because Hamas now is more popular than before because at least was standing up despite their crimes and terrorism on October 7th against decades of oppression. And so that means there's not going to be a Palestinian successor to Hamas. It's not going to happen. So what are the alternatives? Israel's not going to stay there forever. The only way that you could, I think, even come close to resolving this, and it's happened in other situations that are similar, like in East Timor, where the UN had a caretaker government that came in and operated in elections. And they did something similar in Namibia when it escaped from domination by South Africa. But for the UN to come in with a caretaker administration, you're going to have to have the UN Security Council's Act. And with the US protecting Israel, that's not going to happen. So as grisly as it seems, I don't see any endpoint to this complete atrocity. But let's get back to the International Court of Justice, where when, as if on cue, Toady Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, who should be called our Secretary of War, pronounced South Africa's lawsuit against Israel on grounds of genocide before the International Court of Justice, meritless. That was his quote, meritless. Your comment. Well, number one, how does he know? You haven't had the trial begin. This kind of inverts the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland. Innocent first, trial later. (laughs) Really? They have the trial to decide guilt or innocence, and it doesn't come after your verdict. So it's a you know, I don't want to use the word asinine, but that fits here. Statement to make. Why doesn't say, yeah, this is the judicial process? You know, we'll wait to see what the evidence shows. Both sides have to come forth with it. He, if anyone, should know about the vast amount of incriminating evidence because he goes over to the Netanyahu and, and, he, and silently he protests it and says, can't you back away from the slaughter of civilians? And then he says nothing afterwards. So, he just is mouthing, I believe, what Israel told them to mouth. And, I mean, it speaks volumes, I think, Ralph, that no other country in the world has said, oh, this clear innocence on Israel before the trial even has begun. We're the only one. Anna? Bruce, for those of us who aren't familiar with the, you know, the workings of international law, could you just lay out, first off, what's the status of the Palestinian people in international law? Like why, if I'm a layman and I'm saying, why is South Africa bringing the case? Why aren't the Palestinians? What's their standing in the UN? And then what materially would the case do if they found in favor of the South African complaint? What practical consequences could result? So there's a wonderful question. The Palestinian authority, the Palestine, they have not been admitted as a member of the United Nations. The International Court of Justice jurisdiction extends only to suits between signatory nations. The International Court of Justice is part of the United Nations Charter. So even though the Palestinian Authority is a signatory to the International Criminal Court, and it could bring criminal charges against individuals, it's not a nation still under international law that would bring it within the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. 
even though the United Nations recognizes the Palestinian Authority and provides them with a seat at the General Assembly. Is that correct? Well, but they're not they're not admitted as an actual member. They have some kind of status in these special advisory groups, but they don't have national status, you know, entitled to vote, for example, in the General Assembly. And they don't sit right. on the security. But there's some recognition. Security. There's some recognition of it. Yeah, that's, there's some recognition. And in the International Criminal Court, under the Rome Statute, the Palestinian Authority validly became a member of the International Criminal Court. So there's different standards and different. And you remember, you need to get approval of the General Assembly and Security Council to become a new member. And you could imagine the politics of that is going to be different than at the International Criminal Court. Now, the second, I think, prong of your question, Anna, is, well, what is the significance? What powers does the ICJ have, or the ICC for that matter? And that's, it's probably disappointing. It's really, they can make pronounced judgments, and they can move quickly on what's called interim measures and issue an order requiring the cessation of genocide. But they don't have any enforcement authority. They don't have any paratroopers. They don't have any marshals. So the only real enforcement authority is if the UN Security Council decided to step in and say, any country that's in defiance of an ICJ ruling, we're going to take over, you know, have caretaker, put in uh, peacekeeping forces. You could even start, you know, you know, engage in war, which was done in Korea, impose sanctions, all sorts of things. But at least at present, given the diplomatic posture of the United States in other Security Council proceedings, it was almost certain that the United States would block any Security Council resolution trying to actually enforce an ICJ rule. On that note, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Bruce Fine, constitutional international law specialist and a frequent guest on our show. Thank you again, Bruce. Thank, Thank you. you. So, Ralph, that Rube Goldberg machine called the Boeing Max is at it again. Boeing started off 2024 with a big blowout. On January 5th, an Alaska Airlines flight made an emergency landing after a plugged emergency exit panel of the 737-9 MAX detached mid-flight. There were no deaths or serious injuries, fortunately, but it's brought renewed scrutiny to Boeing, their production quality and engineering, and their troubled 737 MAX series jets. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating the incident, and the FAA has grounded every Boeing plane with a door plug pending their inspections and the NTSB's investigation. The FAA has said, quote, the safety of the flying public, not speed, will determine the timeline for returning the Boeing 737-9 MAX to service, unquote. What's your comment on this ongoing Boeing disaster? It is an ongoing Boeing disaster for Boeing, and it's the consequence of how Boeing got away with the crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia under a sweetheart deal by the Justice Department, who agreed to a deferred prosecution agreement and let off the top executives, Calhoun and Muhlenberg, among others, who were responsible for the cutting the corners that led to the software in the 737 Maxes taking control of the plane away from the pilots and putting the planes into a vertical death dive, hitting the Java Sea and the land outside Addis Ababa in Ethiopia at 550 miles an hour, killing hundreds of passengers and all the crew. So Boeing 
is used to being the monopoly plane maker, big passenger plane maker in America, and we're reaping the bitter fruits of that monopoly because the airlines feel they have nowhere to go except Airbus in Europe, and, and they are so overwhelmed with orders that they can't meet the demand. So they have to go back to Boeing, and Boeing has subordinated its engineering integrity for Wall Street speculation in its stock. And there are now several former Boeing engineers, inspectors who are speaking out most prominently on this episode in Portland, which could have ended 171 passenger lives. That was a close call because the hole was as big as a refrigerator. And you can imagine what the wind was at 16,000 feet. The person who's spoken out in most details, Ed Pearson, who's been on quite a few shows in the last few days, because he started blowing the whistle on this inside Boeing before he retired, that the production situation, the assembly line speed, the running roughshod over Boeing inspectors was part of the Boeing culture. So I would advise airline passengers, do not under any condition fly any of the series titled 737 Maxes. You can call up ahead of time, ask the airline or the travel agent what kind of plane there is, and proceed accordingly. Well, thank you for that, Ralph. You heard it here, passengers. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ralph, but does this current issue with the loose nuts and bolts on the door plugs, is this something that the plugs would have had to be approved by the FAA before they went out? Is this, it seems like a kind of a gap in regulation, kind of like with the MCAS update, where they make a change to the plane that they claim is minor, so they don't have to do additional training or additional get additional approval. And it turns out to actually be pretty important when you're putting a big tube up into the sky. Well, it's in the shadows. Technically, a change like that, plugging a emergency door would have to be approved by the FAA. The FAA has inspection office up in Seattle, and they go to the Boeing factories all the time, but they've been rather lax over the years, to put it mildly. They have delegated regulatory authority to Boeing to regulate itself, and then they do the paperwork at the FAA. There was another problem a few weeks ago that was disclosed about uh, Boeing 737 MAX, and it was a problem dealing with a loose nut at the rudder control system. Well, you know, (laughs) you disable a rudder control system, that's the end of the plane. This is no minor deficiency. So the FAA is looking into that now, and some airlines are inspecting and finding a problem there with the loose bolt on the rudder control system. So to be continued, this is going to be more and more disclosures, and it will come right back to the lack of regulatory enforcement and prosecution of the culpable executives who have turned a once proud engineering aerospace company into a speculative tool to increase the stock price on Wall Street. I want to thank our guests again, John Kent and Bruce Fine. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. 
Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to TortMuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at RalphNaderRadioHour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everyone. Those of you who want to become activists against this gambling pandemic and all its terrible consequences on millions of people, especially youngsters now, can get the article titled Time to Criminalize Internet Gambling by Professor John Warren Kent. Just go to CapitalCitizen.com. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First up, Hannah asked John Kent about the Hypocrites Hall of Fame. Hannah? I understand, Mr. Kent. You're hesitant to name names, but at stoppredatorygambling.org, which is referenced in your article in the Capitol Hill Citizen, they have a very interesting page on the Hypocrite Hall of Fame. Could you tell us a bit about the Hypocrite Hall of Fame? Yes, stoppredatorygambling.org is a terrific charitable educational organization, which gets out a lot of this information to the states and indeed internationally including the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, European countries. They're a very good organization, and I'm glad that you went to that website and found that information. They are very credible, and I think you can use anything that you get off their website. The genocide case against Israel wasn't the only lawsuit we wanted to ask Bruce Fine about on this week's show. Here's Ralph and Bruce discussing Donald Trump's many legal battles, his ludicrous defense, and how quote-unquote candidate Trump and quote-unquote defendant Trump might get in each other's way. Plus, Steve and David have some questions for Bruce. Well, Bruce, when you were at law school, you heard that phrase, justice delayed is justice denied. And that's been the theme for Donald Trump during his business career as a failed gambling czar and as president. That's the theme. He has been able to delay all his violations of statutes and other violation of statutes and constitution year after year after year. So now we have less than a year before the election. He's going to be the nominee by all punditry. And although there are pending cases and indictments of Donald Trump from Georgia to Washington to New York City, there's serious doubt as whether there's going to be a trial in any of these cases before the election. And we wrote a letter on this point, justice delayed is justice denied, to Attorney General Merrick Garland and sent copies to all the assistant attorneys general to make sure that he would get it and read it. We also sent it to the press, which ignored it. 
Can you tell our listeners the content of this letter? The understanding was that by any rational measure, uh, including but not limited to January 6th, that at least the fate of Mr. Trump and his ability, a possible return to the White House is a clear and present danger to the Constitution of the United States and our republic. Even since he left the White House, among other things, he has stated categorically that the Constitution can be terminated if you make an allegation of electoral fraud. That's truly frightening. And he's make arguments in court and out of court that are indistinguishable from the divine right of kings. Anything that I do as president is legal, even assassinating my political opponents. I mean, that is frightening. And these are not jokes. Uh, this is what he and his lawyers have repeated on numerous occasions. They're not slip of the tongue. And that makes all the more urgent the need to have these trials, 91 felonies outstanding, completed well before November balloting in 2024. So the people are fully informed at what the danger is, this man getting into the White House again and having the authority to weaponize, if you will, the arms of government against the American people. At least in my mind, I have no doubt that he will do that. I think he believes that he learned a lot from his first time around. He came in rather clueless about what powers he had. Now he's weeded out his lawyers who have any conscience whatsoever. So he surrounds himself with those who will do his bidding. And I think it means the end of the rule of law. If he is elected to the White House, all the more urgent to insist on speedy trial that's in the Constitution. And if necessary, going to courts of appeals and getting writs of mandamus saying no more postponements. As you pointed out before, Ralph, the January 6th trials have already occurred for over 900 trials and plea bargains. They're already done. Some got sentences 18 years. There's no reason why these other cases are any more factually or legally complex, including seditious conspiracy, than the cases that have already been tried. So the only explanation in my mind why there's been such a leisurely approach is that there's still hesitation at some corners of the Biden administration about trying to play off how the prosecutions and convictions would work in 2024. Thinking, among other things, well, after the indictments in some quarters, Trump's popularity climbed. So maybe we don't even want to have verdicts before 24. Well, that's a, in my mind, that's a, if there ever was one, a Faustian bargain. And no, you don't, you don't play off the rule of law and justice against political calculations in 2024. Our letter to Attorney General Garland focused on our request that the Attorney General file a mandamus action in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in order to require Judge Cannon, who's handling the case on the classified documents in Florida, not to further delay her trial date. Judge Cannon was a Trump nominee. Tell us about Judge Cannon and when did she actually put a trial date in May 2024 for this relatively straightforward case? Well, first of all, she's very inexperienced. She's handled only a handful of trials. But more importantly, she's already displayed pronounced bias in favor of Trump. In a very bizarre circumstance, she decided that the Justice Department could not review all of the documents they had seized pursuant to a search warrant issued by a magistrate in her own court, establishing probable cause to believe they would contain evidence of his multiple Espionage Act violations and 
and perjury, the obstruction of justice. And she appointed a special master to try to entertain some arguable privilege claims that she said were necessary to ensure that the president was properly protected. Well, that particular ruling was immediately appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. They had one member who was very conservative, appointed by Bush, and they unanimously, in a procurement opinion, wrapped her knuckles and said, "This we've never even seen anything like this, and summarily reversed and sent it back and said, no, the Justice Department gets to review every document that they've got pursuant to a valid search warrant. Mr. Trump never challenged the validity of the warrant. So we already know that's one feature. The second thing that we know is, yeah, she keeps making these rulings on Classified Information Procedures Act, and she's not sure now whether the May 2024 date will stick. Anyway, when you look all the circumstantial evidence, it creates at least the appearance that she's trying to throw the trial date in favor of Trump. And his lawyers have asked that it not even begin till after 2024, which if he won the election, he certainly would dismiss the case against himself without a doubt. And all those, in my judgment, give justification for seeking mandamus at this time, not waiting around. So we have a a stuck date that can't slide anymore. Well, if he's elected president, he will, by his own declaration, do what? If he He was convicted before the election. If he was convicted before the election, he could still, on the federal cases, and we need to remember that of the four outstanding prosecutions, two are federal and two are state. On the federal cases, if he was convicted, he can pardon himself, or at least he believes he could. There is a Department of Justice opinion issued when I was around then saying that Nixon couldn't pardon himself when that was a fear, a concern just before he resigned over the Watergate scandal. But that's just an opinion of the Department of Justice. I don't believe that Mr. Trump would pay any attention to it. With regard to the state cases, he can't pardon himself from state prosecutions. He would have to hope that the governors of New York and Georgia, which are the states which are presiding over his state prosecutions, would decide under state law to issue pardons. But if he's been convicted before he enters the White House, he's stuck, which means he could be held in jail which is more likely, I think, in the Georgia case than in the New York case. Anyway, the whole thing would be, a, my judgment, a catastrophe. Listeners, you you can get the full text of our letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland by going to our website, nader.org. You can also sign up to receive free electronically every week my weekly column and endure seven minutes of agitation. I mean, listen, I think the real game here, March 4th, I'm sure, is going to be the opening trial in the January 6th case, even though it's not insurrection. And I think the evidence, you know, once is going to be so devastating. And maybe this judge is, is, is possible that she'll put cameras in the courtroom. The U.S. Supreme Court said that's not violates due process to have cameras in the courtroom. In federal courts, it's a case by case decision. But I can't imagine anything more urgent than having the American people see all the evidence, including the Mike Pence statement, choose between me and the Constitution. It's not going to shake you know, the true believers that Trump's got. But the ones who have any hesitation, <laughs> that's just... So they'll be... call Pence to testify in person? They'll call these people in person? Well, it's up to the prosecutor, but I have no doubt those are the ones that would be subpoenaed. Yes. And, yeah, and, they just and, can't. And Trump. Yeah, and they'll they have to just decide not they, to they show up. Defy, they can't defy this. 
like they can't. No, no. And, and plus, you'll be able to see, I'm sure there'll be some of the video that we saw during the January 6th committee hearings, all the violence and everything going on and Trump sitting there twiddling his fingers while the violence is unfolding for over three hours doing nothing, you know, calling them great patriots and whatever. <laughs> yeah. Bruce, I want to get back to the Trump immunity issue. Is there any chance that any appeals court or a Supreme Court would ever agree that President Trump or that the candidate Trump, whoever, whatever you want to call him, is immune from uh, prosecution? Is this, I guess it is a delay tactic, but is there any chance that that argument would float? If they apply the law, Steve, the answer is categorically no. I mean, I lived through, and Ralph knows too, Watergate from beginning to end. And that's the argument Nixon was making. If the president does it, 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 it makes it legal. Remember, Nixon frost. It lost. Right. Lost in the U.S. Supreme Court, eight to zero. He lost the reason why he accepted a pardon from Ford, because he knew he was vulnerable to criminal prosecution. Because when you accept a pardon, you accept that you committed the crimes. And even that most, the U.S. Department of Justice said an incumbent president may not be subject to prosecution, but we're talking about someone who's not out of office. There is less than zero chance that Trump will prevail on this argument. He's basically going back to divine right of kings. Charles I made the argument in 1849. It didn't save him from the from a guillotine. And it's not going to prevail here either. He's also made, and this is I was thinking, Ralph, over our Hatch Act, his lawyers argued in the Court of Appeals, everything the president does while he is president is an official act. OK, can you imagine how many Hatch Act violations Mr. Trump did running for president in 2020 from the White House? I mean, you've now convicted him of literally hundreds of Hatch Act crimes. Explain but it shows that. how desperate the lawyer was. Explain well, I explained it briefly. this way. Yes, because the Hatch Act makes criminal. No exemption from anybody. The use of federal properties or federal employees on your official time to try to impact the outcome of any federal election. That is a criminal violation. And if everything Trump did during his White House years was official, <laughs> we know how many hours and how many events he had at the White House, including online and speaking to the Republican National Convention. Well, I don't know what's North Carolina and Florida, continually using federal employees to help the distribution of what he was saying and what he was doing online, including using federal employees to put his name on checks that you may receive for the COVID checks or sending you a letter on White House stationery saying, hey, you got a wire transfer courtesy of me because I help people who were lost their jobs because of COVID. All of those would be Hatch Act crimes. If he accepts, yeah, that was in my official capacity. I was discharging my duties as president, trying to impact the outcome of the 2020 election. <laughs> you get a sense of Trump's delusion of immunity, where it comes from, not just his superego, but Attorney General Merrick Garland never moved to prosecute Trump under the Hatch Act. It was one of the most slam dunk violations you can imagine. Right on the White House lawn, he accepts the Republican nomination for president in the 2020 election. It's right there on video, not to mention all the other examples you gave. David? Yeah. The court is forced to hear arguments on those Section 3 of the 14th Amendment ballot disqualifications. I think it's next month. For us mere mortals to understand this, Bill Barr subscribes to something called the unitary executive theory, 
which seems kind of crackpot, but what what is the unitary executive theory? And how many of our Supreme Court justices might also subscribe to it? And what would that, what could that mean? First, the first thing I want to say, David, is the unitary executive has nothing to do with the constitutional issue raised in the Colorado case. It's totally divorced. It relates to the issue of whether the president should be able to control through firing any federal executive official. So independent agencies are out, if you will, you know, because the idea is, well, the president is responsible for all of his subordinates, so he should be able to fire them. It doesn't mean unitary, it doesn't mean limitless. It just means he's got to have everybody on his team. That is not what this case is about. And the, ironically, in this particular case, it really comes back, I believe, against some of these more conservative views that the state legislatures decide everything when it comes to presidential elections. Because Article 2 says that the process of electing a president is a hybrid state and federal issue. The state's legislatures decide the process of electing, but in casting votes for the president, a federal function is being performed. That's the clear language of Article 2. Now, in the Colorado case, the color and remember, state courts have the last word on what a state law means. The Colorado Supreme Court said our state law passed by the Colorado legislature says courts can entertain disqualifications under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. A five day trial was held in a court. Trump was represented. He could introduce all of the exculpatory evidence he wanted. That was admissible. Yelling witch hunts is not admissible evidence. And the judge found by clear and convincing evidence, he engaged in insurrection and said, under Colorado law, you can't appear on the Colorado ballot, even as a primary. That as a matter of state law. And that state law is what Article 2 of the Constitution governs for the selection of presidential electors in that state. It goes to the Colorado Supreme Court. It's decided four to three, not on the insurrection issue. Some of the dissenters thought Colorado law did not permit a Section 3 challenge at this stage. But that was the losing provision. But that's the issue now before the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I first my first reaction, David, was Colorado is 10 electoral votes. And as long as the Colorado decision is limited to Colorado, which is is, why are you contesting it? I mean, Ralph, Ralph, I don't think Ralph appeared on all 50 ballots when he was running for president in 2000. That oftentimes happens because you can win a majority of electoral votes without being on all the ballots. But they didn't do that. They're now taking the case to have nationwide presidential value and saying that there wasn't any authority under the Constitution to decide the disqualification issue because only Congress can decide that. It's a really bizarre argument, David, because every other provision of the Constitution, if you're a plaintiff, you can choose federal or state court to adjudicate your constitutional claim. If you have a free speech claim, you can go into federal court or state court because state courts are obliged to uphold the Constitution like federal courts are. If you have an equal protection claim under the 14th Amendment, you can go into federal court, you can go into state court, or a due process claim, or privileges and immunity claim. All these, the plaintiff gets to choose the choice of forum, and the state courts are open just like the federal courts are. So to argue that somehow uniquely Section 3 issues can only be litigated in a federal jurisdiction that Congress sanctions would be turning all of our historical experience on its head. Every other provision is Bruce, open uh, in both state or federal courts. 
I know many of our listeners are now asking, what is Section 3 the 14th Amendment? Section 3 of the 14th Amendment provides that you are disqualified from holding any office, federal, state, or local, if after having at one point subscribed under oath to defend and uphold the Constitution of the United States, you, quote, engage in insurrection against the United States. Insurrection meaning using force or violence to prevent the enforcement of a federal law, like the 12th Amendment for counting electoral votes. That's what Section 3 is about. It obviously is used very little because we've had a wonderful experience of presidents not trying to overthrow the peaceful transfer of presidential power. So all these cases saying, well, all the arguments that, well, this is unique. It is unique because what President Trump did was unique in the history of the United States by orders of magnitude. I mean, it was inconceivable, I believe. And that's one of the reasons why I think there was less security on January 6th than might otherwise been. A president of the United States would foment and encourage people to go up to Capitol Hill to prevent Mike Pence from counting electoral votes by force and intimidation and chanting, hang Mike Pence. So the argument that, well, this issue has never risen before, I understand, because no ever president has ever acted this way before. Mike Pence has said that Trump said what to him? That on the morning of January 6th, just hours before he was to begin counting the state-certified electoral votes, and I wanted to underscore to the listeners, these were certified votes coming after 61 successful defenses against challenges. And these from Trump judges, from Obama judges, from Bush judges across the political spectrum, that just hours before, under the 12th Amendment, he was to begin his constitutional duty of counting the electoral votes. Trump told him, you need to choose between me and the Constitution, showing that Trump knew that what he was asking Mr. Pence to do and what his mob was trying to do was unconstitutional because he distinguished between what he was asking and what he knew the Constitution required, which is important to show his corrupt intent and his behavior on January 6th. Bruce, he literally said that you have to choose between me and the Constitution? That, yes, those were his Mike Pence said, yeah, those are his direct words repeated by Michael Pence on several occasions. And Mr. Pence most recently said, Mr. Trump, he wouldn't trust Mr. Trump anymore in the White House. You should vote for somebody else. And remember, Mr. Pence also said, that Mr. Trump threatened by his actions the safety of himself and his families, including little kids who were up there trapped on the Capitol when the mob entered. So, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to even imagine anything more unfathomable by our framers, or certainly in the history of the United States. Well, more than imagination, the House Special Committee on January 6th held exhaustive hearings and investigations and concluded that Trump indeed engaged in insurrection on January 6th. Yes, and, and, yeah, and recommended were sent to the Justice Department. Yes, unfortunately, the department, they've charged seditious conspiracy. My view is they have an ulterior political motive why they didn't move forward on insurrection, as they thought it would not be helpful politically, not that they couldn't prove the charge. Because proving seditious conspiracy, if you're an, a lawyer, no, it's virtually the same as proving insurrections, trying to overthrow the government by force and violence. Insurrection is just trying to thwart the enforcement of federal law by force and violence. But they're very, very similar. And they got convictions in the seditious conspiracy cases why you couldn't get it in insurrection. I think they backed away because they got nervous 
about whether it would help Mr. Trump politically. But that's not I don't think that's a legitimate influence in exercising prosecutorial discretion. Time now for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. In response to Israel's campaign of destruction in Gaza, South Africa has filed a lawsuit at the International Court of Justice alleging that Israel's actions, quote, are genocidal in character because they are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinians in Gaza, end quote, per PBS News. Israel, which PBS acknowledges, quote, has a history of ignoring international tribunals, end quote, intends to send a legal team to The Hague to fight this case. South Africa is joined in this case by a number of states, including the Organization of Islamic Countries, the Plurinational State of Bolivia, Jordan, Turkey, and Malaysia, according to Al Jazeera. Some high-profile individuals have also signed on, most notably Israeli leftist M.K. Ofar Kasif, who said, quote, My constitutional duty is to Israeli society and all its residents, not to a government whose members and its coalition are calling for ethnic cleansing and even actual genocide, end quote. Common Dreams reports that in retaliation, right-wing Israeli MKs are seeking to expel Kassif from the Knesset. Speaking to Democracy Now!, Professor Francis Boyle, the only lawyer to have ever successfully won a genocide convention case at the ICJ, said, quote, I believe South Africa will win an order against Israel to cease and desist from committing all acts of genocide against the Palestinians, end quote. He added that Israel has historically heeded orders from the U.S. to cease attacks on Palestine, meaning, quote, we here in the United States of America have the power to stop this. Leaking anonymously to The Guardian, extremism experts at the Anti-Defamation League are expressing outrage at the organization's attempts to draw quote-unquote false equivalences between anti-Semitism and left-wing anti-Zionism, emphasizing that such equivocation undermines their mission to stop anti-Semitic hate. One ADL employee went so far as to say, quote, the ADL has a pro-Israel bias and an agenda to suppress pro-Palestinian activism. End quote. Since October 7th, the ADL has, quote, been working with law enforcement to crack down on college campus activism, developing a legal strategy to go after branches of Students for Justice in Palestine, and describing grassroots calls for protests of Israel's military campaign as pro-Hamas activism. A stunning report in The Intercept reveals that, quote, whether reporting from the Middle East, the United States, or anywhere else across the globe, every CNN journalist covering Israel and Palestine must submit their work for review by the news organization's bureau in Jerusalem prior to publication, end quote. While CNN corporate claims this does not significantly impact their coverage of Israel and Palestine issues, a CNN staffer, speaking anonymously for fear of reprisal, disputes this claim, saying, quote, every single Israel-Palestine related line for reporting must seek approval from the Jerusalem bureau or when the Bureau is not staffed, from a select few handpicked by the Bureau and senior management, end quote. As Jim Norekis of FAIR puts it, quote, when you have a protocol that routes all stories through one checkpoint, you're interested in control. And the question is who is controlling the story. President Biden is facing a campaign staff revolt related to his policy on Gaza, Politico reports. In a letter, 17 current Biden campaign staffers wrote, quote, as your staff, we believe it is both a moral and electoral imperative for you to publicly call for a cessation of violence. Complicity in the death of over 20,000 Palestinians, 8,200 of whom are children, simply cannot be justified. End quote. Beyond the clear moral imperative of this plea, the staffers emphasize that this is a form of quote-unquote tough love intended to help Biden avert electoral catastrophe come November, 
already ominously portended by, quote, volunteers quitting in droves, end quote, over Gaza. Over 130 constituents of Representative Elise Stefanik, along with groups representing district members and concerned citizens, sent a letter to the Congresswoman this week decrying her conduct in the recent hearing that led to the ouster of the presidents of Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania. The letter excoriated Rep. Stefanik for charging the university presidents with anti-Semitism while herself full-throatedly endorsing the ongoing genocide in Gaza, ending with the clear demand, quote, resign and let us be done with you. The Federal Trade Commission has won a temporary block of IQVIA's acquisition of Propel Media, according to a statement released by the commission. The FTC sought to block this merger because, quote, the proposed acquisition would give IQVIA a market-leading position in programmatic advertising targeted to doctors and other healthcare professionals, end quote. Senator Elizabeth Warren congratulated the FTC on social media, writing, quote, this court win is the FTC's fourth merger victory in the healthcare industry in less than a month. Lena Khan continues to fight for more competition and against bad deals that would raise healthcare prices for consumers. You may have heard about the recent Boeing 737 MAX 9 crisis, in which a violent explosive decompression event resulted in a door plug blowing out of the plane while in midair. Amid the flurry of information coming out about the story, it is worth highlighting the response by the Association of Flight Attendants, headed by labor icon Sarah Nelson. Quote, Our union supports the FAA's quick and decisive action to ground certain 737 MAX 9s that do not meet the inspection cycle specified in the Emergency Airworthiness Directive. This is a critical move to ensure the safety of all crew and passengers, as well as confidence in aviation safety. Lives must always come first. Last night's incident could have been worse, but flight attendants and pilots of Alaska 1282 ensured all passengers and crew arrived safely back on the ground. We commend the entire crew. We are closely monitoring working with our airlines, Alaska and United, the FAA, and DOT to ensure that aircraft are not returned to service until they are deemed safe for all. AFA is also participating in the NTSB investigation, and we support that process for full safety findings and actions. Flight attendants are aviation's first responders, we are trained for emergencies, and we work every flight for aviation safety first and foremost. We fly only when it's safe. Finally, Taking notice of the recent groundbreaking Senate hearing on corporate crime, the Washington Post devoted an entire column to the issue. Focusing on the cost of corporate crime, the paper notes, quote, the size and scope of corporate crime are massive, with an annual price tag exceeding $300 billion, according to FBI data. Street crime, by comparison, is a meager $16 billion, end quote. Furthermore, the Post repeated Senator Durbin's lamentation that the Department of Justice lacks resources, quote, to battle deep-pocketed corporations, end quote, sending a message that, quote, if you've got enough money, you can game the system and walk away with billions when it's over, end quote. In his closing remarks, Durbin wondered aloud, quote, what does it say about the system of justice in America if the big guys are exempt and the little guys go to jail? This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting with-